Kale Clark here. Thanks for listening to my podcast. Check out Charity Mobile and prayerfully consider making them your wireless carrier. Mention offer code Relevant Radio and get a free phone. Don't delay. CharityMobile.com. That's CharityMobile.com. Let me ask you this question. Is human sacrifice always wrong? That's kind of a trick question because in the ancient world, worship was all about sacrifice and tragically sometimes it did involve human sacrifices, especially in pagan cults. But St. Paul says there is a kind of human sacrifice that we have to offer in the church. This is Cale Clark and this is The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant radio app. Now, the good news is here, with these sacrifices, nobody dies. Kind of. We don't die physically, but we do die to ourselves in order to live the life of Christ more truly. So this is what St. Paul is going to talk about right now in the letter to the Romans. We've reached the final section of the letter, and Paul is going to get really practical here. And this is not egghead theology here. When he's talking about theology in the first 11 chapters, all of it is very practical because how we believe really does influence how we live. And so this is why he says at the beginning of chapter 12, as he reaches into this sort of ethical section of the letter, he starts off with the word, therefore. So let's let's read this passage here. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So just those two verses of Romans chapter 12, there's a lot of stuff here. There's a lot of material here. So whenever we see the word therefore in scripture, we need to see what it's there for. I know it's super cheesy, but I had to say it. So he's really referencing everything he said up to this point in the first 11 chapters. In light of all of this, I want you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Now, there's so much talk in today's society about spirituality. Everybody wants to be spiritual and not religious. I'm not religious. I'm spiritual. Celebrities will say this. Um, It's very trendy. You can't have spirituality without religion, number one. But number two, this is what true spirituality really is. St. Paul explains it. It's not sort of ethereal. It's not sort of in the the air. It involves offering our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. So it's very corporal. It's very physical. And it's intriguing because... In ancient religion, when it comes to worship, we we think about worship in in a certain way. We think about believing in God. We we, we obviously, in the Catholic Church, we talk about going to Mass and and the sacrifice of the Mass, all that sort of stuff. But outside of the Catholic Church, when you talk about religion, when you talk about sacrifice, people just don't understand that in the ancient world, and this is something Paul's readers would have been really familiar with, sacrifice was often very bodily in form. It's an animal sacrifice in the temple for the Jews. 
uh, the sacrifice of the lambs, if you will. And, and even in some pagan religions, as I alluded to off the top, there was human sacrifice, and, and this was not a good thing. Uh, this was um, people offering other human beings to their gods, small g gods. This is the focal point in, in many cases of their worship. So this idea of offering a body in sacrifice, Paul's readers understood this very, very well, but not in the way that he's talking about. And he has to really explain what's going on here in a new era, in a new way. And so this, this is an intriguing word that is used here when he says you need to offer your bodies to God as a living sacrifice. He's used this word offer before, especially in chapter six. Let's look at chapter six, verse 13. This is one of the things that Paul says back then, and I'm going to look this up for you. He says, do not yield your members, and by that he means the members of your body. Do not yield your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but yield yourselves or offer yourselves to God as men who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as weapons of righteousness. So this idea of we, we can't let sin reign in our bodies. We've got to offer our bodies to God. So th- this is certainly true for us. We have to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And some people have said, well, maybe this means when we talk about living sacrifices, it simply means that we're alive spiritually. We we're kind of dead before. We were kind of like the walking dead before baptism. Maybe he means to say that, hey, now that you're spiritually alive, you can offer yourself to God as a living sacrifice. But I, I don't think that's what he means here. I don't think, I think that's reaching a little bit too far. He, he means that as living people, we have, to, we have to offer ourselves. And an old preacher's joke, a living sacrifice can always crawl off the altar. That, that's the difference between a living sacrifice and a dead sacrifice. They're not going anywhere. The, the animals that were slaughtered in the temple, they can't move, but we can. As a living sacrifice, we can always choose to say no to God and not offer ourselves. And obviously, we shouldn't do that. But there's also um, another uh, interesting insight into what St. Paul is saying here. If we look at his actual language in the original Greek, when he talks about offering our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, this is your spiritual act of worship. It is true that it's offering of our bodies, and this is true spirituality. Nowhere in the Bible does the word spiritual mean non-physical that it's sort of just all in our spirits, but we can do whatever we want with our bodies. No, spirituality encompasses the entire person, body, mind, and soul. And that's really what he means when he says, offer yourselves, offer your entire being. The body refers to not just the physical body, but the soul within, the mind within, all of a human person. And this is what God wants for us, shalom, this true peace of body, mind, and soul. But there's an interesting... um, thing to think about when you look at the underlying Greek word, when he talks about spiritual, this is your spiritual act of worship. The actual Greek word there is logikos, logikos. And that's where you get the word logic from, which is which is kind of uh, intriguing. And that's why some English translations of Romans chapter 12, they'll kind of render this a little bit differently. They'll say, this is your reasonable act of worship. This is your true act of worship. This is your intelligent act of worship. So that, that's something that we really have to, to really delve into here because what he's really saying is that 
your offering to God of yourself also has to be very, very well informed. It has to be logical. We're not, we're not like those animals that were offered in the temple that were brute creatures of instinct. We have rational souls. We can choose to give ourselves to God. And that's, that's what really pleases God. The, the act of the will in order to put ourselves on that altar of sacrifice, metaphorically, of course, metaphorically. So th- this is um, really important for us to, uh, to understand because this is one of the ways that the true Christianity, Catholicism, differs from pagan religions. Because, again, with the system of animal sacrifices that, that many religions had, a lot of people used to think that all you, ha- all you had to do was just sort of fulfill the precepts, make your sacrifices at the right time, bring the animal in, have it slaughtered, and you're done. You can sort of, you know, brush your hands off and, and carry on with your day. That's all you have to do to please God, offer this sacrifice. It doesn't matter even how sincere you are in doing it. You just got to get it done. Now, if you look through the Old Testament, the prophets were pretty livid about this whole mindset. God will only honor sacrifices that come from where? A pure heart. The book of Hosea, the prophet Hosea talks about this. The prophet Micah talks about this. So you, the old true understanding, even in the Old Covenant time of sacrifice, was that God is really pleased with the sacrifice when you offer it with your heart. Your whole mind and heart have to be engaged. Anybody can, can offer an animal. Anybody can cough up the dough, buy an animal, take it to the, to the temple and have it slaughtered. But what about your interior life? What about your interior heart? This is one of the reasons why Paul says, you can't conform yourselves to this world. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is really important. Our worship has to be logikos as well. And and it's kind of interesting that spirituality is... Is, there's a physical dimension to it, offering the body, but there's also, of course, a reasonable dimension to it. We've got to rationally understand the truth about God that Paul has explained throughout Romans, and we've got to we've got to we've got to go ahead and offer our bodies as well in this. So it's an informed sacrifice. It's an informed worship, and this is super super important for us to understand. And th- this is um, also intriguing to note in light of the theology of the body of St. John Paul II. One of the things that I noted in studying the theology of the body is that nowhere in his writings and in his speeches on theology of the body did Pope John Paul II talk about this passage. But I wish he had, because to me, it just kind of leaps out as, as having theology of the body written all over it. This idea of offering your body as a living sacrifice to God holy and acceptable. This is your spiritual worship. And this makes so much sense of our Catholic faith, doesn't it? Because there is there is such a physical element to our worship. As soon as we come into a, to a parish church, the first thing we do usually is we dip our hand into the holy water font and we make the sign of the cross over our bodies. It's a, it's a remembrance of our baptism. It calls to mind the sacramental of holy water that we've offered our entire selves to God in baptism, body, mind, and soul. During the Mass, we kneel when we pray. It's a physical posture meant to reflect our interior disposition of humility before God the King. This is also why we genuflect before the tabernacle, where Jesus is present physically 
in the sacrament of the Eucharist. You could even say the sacraments themselves. Obviously, there are physical signs that, that really do carry God's grace, his life. And so the physicality of our Catholic worship has always been there. The body is right in the middle of it. The sacrament of marriage, the, the very matter of the sacrament, it, the bodies of husband and wife. So it's very physical. It's very corporal. God created us to live in bodies. And he said it was very good. He says this back in the book of Genesis. And when you look at the theology of the body, really what it is, is John Paul II's great Bible study on Genesis. He goes right back to Genesis. He starts with the words of Jesus. In the beginning, it was not so. And he's talking about how divorce is not permissible in the kingdom of God. In the beginning, it was not so. And JP too really wanted to ask that question. What was it like in the beginning then? And that's where he goes back to Genesis, the three original experiences of man and woman. And one of the, the keys to it, obviously, is this, what he called original nakedness. They were naked without shame uh, because sin wasn't in the world. And everything that they did in the body, including their, their married life, was always oriented to the will of God. And this is what we have to relearn in the, in the Catholic life. And this is exactly why St. Paul says here, you need to stop being conformed to the pattern of this world, to the ways of this world that are apart from God, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what the will of God is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Kale Clark. And, and obviously this whole idea of offering our bodies to God goes far beyond Sunday Mass. It goes into every single day of the week, Monday morning when we go to work. We are offering ourselves to God. When we sit down at our desk, we have to make an altar out of our desk. When we take our lunch break and we consume our food, we, we've got to thank God for it. We have to, when we use our tongues, as as, as St. James says in his letter, the tongue can be a, a wicked fire that can set the world ablaze. We've got to speak in such a way that honors God, use that part of our body to glorify him, to speak the truth of Christ, to speak the gospel, and to, to encourage others. Everything that we do, we've got to really live this out to the glory of God. So all the little things are really big things. Be God, God in, everywhere with us in the moment. This is the incarnation of Christ as well. He was living and moving about in the world, living a, a, a life in a community with family, with friends, worshiping at the synagogue, working in the carpentry shop, sanctifying ordin all of life in the body, ordinary life. And we have to do this as well. So one of the great temptations clearly for us is to try to have this dividing line between what's spiritual and between our regular everyday lives and never the twain shall meet. Sunday morning is not the same as Monday morning, but we've got to understand that we need to look at things a lot more holistically because spiritual does not mean non-physical. So this is really, really important to renew our minds, to understand this so, so well. So how do we renew our minds? That, that's a really important topic. Well, what we're doing right now, studying the scriptures together is a big part of it. We live in a world where we're bombarded by messages all the time from the media, uh, from others, from the secular world. And, and there's so much deformation, if you will, that we receive from the culture. It's, it's like the waves crashing against the shore. And I grew up on the east coast of Canada, very close to a place called Peggy's Cove. It's world famous. 
lots of tourists go there. There's a lighthouse there. But there are all these big warning signs by, by the Atlantic Ocean. Don't go too far onto the rocks because the rocks are, they're like gigantic pebbles. They're super smooth. And, and it's because the waves have just beaten them down over the years. And they're so slippery that every year, now a dozen or so people usually slip off the, the rocks at high tide. And some of them never come back. They're just washed out to the ocean and they drown. It, it's extremely dangerous. People need to pay attention. I and I've visiting that place many times. There have been times when I I almost slipped off and and, and fell into the currents. And so, like that, we we kind of lose our, our edges a little bit because of all the deformation that that comes at us every day from the culture. So that's why it's so important for us to read the scriptures, to understand the teachings of the church, um, so that we 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 keep up with our formation and, and, and keep our edge, be that rock. You know that God wants us to be, and so we've got to offer this this kind of kind of fruit to God um, with this mind of Christ. And what's because what's really inside of us will eventually come out somehow. Jesus says uh, it's out of the the heart that the mouth speaks. It's it's also out of the heart that we we do our deeds, and we've really got to live out this new commandment to love one another. The novum mandatum is. As Jesus says in John's gospel, love one another as I have loved you. And how did he love us? Well, he gives us a really good example of this living sacrifice. He goes up onto the cross in his body and he offers himself body and soul to God. And this is what we should do uh, for our brothers and sisters. We have to offer our, our entire lives to him. So we've got to know God's will, yet we've got to obey the commandments. And this is really what Paul is talking about in his letters. We'll see. This is the big ethical section. How does this word of God, how does this message that we've received in Romans, how does this impact our everyday life, our relationship? He wants internal and external transformation. It's not only knowing about God's grace, but it has to affect the way that we live. As one writer has posited, this is a really good illustration. It's a little bit like modern airplanes. Because there's sophisticated onboard computers on, on every plane. Even if it's foggy out, the pilot can land because as long as he trusts the instruments, the computers will tell them, the GPS, the onboard system, will tell them exactly where to land. But even so, even so, airports still have, on every runway, there are lights. There are these physical lights on the ground. So the pilots can, can kind of measure up those two things. The computer is accurate, yes, but I can also watch the lights. In the same way, we've got kind of this onboard GPS. We've got our, our minds. We've got our hearts. And we, we're trying to renew those things and make sure that they're in line with the will of God. But we still need this external guidance, too, uh, of the commands of God, the teachings of the church. And we've got to, we've got to make sure that those two are lined up, just like a plane trying to land. we got to land that plane. we got to land that plane. And we've got to make sure that we are safely uh, docked at the end of the journey. So this is this is something that's super important for us to understand, that this is going to affect our entire selves. Everything that he's going to say later on is very ethical, it's very practical, and it's very much what we need to know and need to read. This is The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. We're going to go more in-depth into Romans in the next episode, this final section. But right now it's time to open up the Faith Explained Q&A mailbag. 
As we open up our Q&A mailbag today, I want to remind you that you can email me your question. The email address is faith, F-A-I-T-H, at relevantradio.com. And you can also send me your question via the X app. My handle there is at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E. And I've got a great uh, email question that comes to me from uh, Father Joseph, and I'm going to get to that in just a second. But just to give you some background on what we're going to talk about, there's a famous passage in the Old Testament prophet, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53. And you, you know it very well if you've read this. This is the passage of the so-called suffering servant. Is this a prophecy about Jesus Christ? <laughs> I would argue, and of course, the church would argue, absolutely, 100%. And, and Isaiah 53 is um, a, a really beautiful passage. And it really kind of starts with, with the end of Isaiah chapter 52, the tail end. But I'm not going to read this, but you can, you can look this up on your own, Isaiah chapter 53. But let's just look at the, a few verses here to show how Jesus' life lines up completely with this. Well, in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2, what do we have here? It says this, He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And I see this as a reference to Jesus during his passion. Think about the movie, The Passion of the Christ, and that brutal depiction of how bloody and battered Jesus would have appeared after his scourging and after his crucifixion. And I think that's really what's what's in view here, looking at Isaiah chapter 53, this prophecy of the suffering servant. All right, what else can we look at? Well, in the third verse, it talks about how humanity despises and rejects him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. It sounds an awful lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Especially during, again, his passion. And then in verses 4 and 5 of Isaiah 53, it talks about how through the suffering of Jesus, we are healed. And there's no Old Testament prophet that, that ever did this, that could heal us spiritually by, by being wounded. But that is the case with Jesus Christ. Surely he took up our pain, it says, and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. This is starting to look an awful lot like Jesus of Nazareth, isn't it? Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus never defended himself when he was on trial, uh, despite all the incredibly bogus charges uh, that were thrown at him in Matthew twenty-seven fourteen, It says he doesn't answer any of them. He just entrusts himself to God. And we could go on, but just one more verse here. In Isaiah 53, verse 9, it says this, He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And that's a reference, of course, to Joseph of Arimathea giving Jesus a proper burial. And he was a very, very uh, prominent member of society. But he was a very good man. And uh, being rich doesn't mean, or being wealthy doesn't mean that you're a bad person. Uh, it's what you do with it. Um, 
money is kind of neutral, but it's, it's a great test of character. So all of this does fit the bill when it looks when you look at the life of Jesus Christ. Who else could it be? Now, Isaiah lived, of course, during the year centuries, somewhere between 700 and 600 B.C. So this is, this is 600 years before the time of Christ. And this brings me to the question uh, from Father Joe, who writes to me, Father Joseph, um, writing to me from Mount Holly, New Jersey, where he's listening on 640 AM WWJZ to Relevant Radio. He sent me a really interesting article, and I thank you for this, Father Joe, about the Dead Sea Scrolls. And, of course, the Dead Sea Scrolls is something that we have talked about on this show before. They're not Christian documents, but they, they were written by a Jewish community that lived in various places in the Holy Land, including in Qumran, these caves by the Dead Sea, and they had copies of Scripture, uh, books of the Old Testament. They also had their own documents, and they were expecting the Messiah to come as well. One of the big finds in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they were found, by the way, in 1948, almost miraculously. So we just last year had the, the 75th anniversary of the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Great Isaiah Scroll, which is one of the incredible finds, a complete copy, pretty much, of the book of Isaiah, centuries older than anything that we had before, a millennium older than the oldest copy of Isaiah that had ever been found to that point. It's really interesting. When you when you look at this, this copy of the book of Isaiah, when you look at Isaiah 53, the suffering servant passage, it says, the servant of the Lord will suffer and die and bear our iniquities. And that's sort of the traditional Hebrew text. But in, in this particular version of the great Isaiah scroll, from the Dead Sea Scrolls, it says, he will see light. He will see light, which is amazing because that is probably a reference to the future resurrection. And not only will this servant suffer, but he will be raised from the dead. So th- this is this is kind of mind-boggling. It kind of sheds some extra light on who this Messiah is. Of course, it can only be Jesus. Another scholar, a great scholar who is deceased, unfortunately, Bill Brownlee, uh, expert on the Dead Sea Scrolls, he, he points out that uh, in the Dead Sea Scroll version of Isaiah that was found just before the suffering servant passage really starts in Isaiah 53, back in Isaiah 52, it says this, the God of all the earth will he be called. That That is astounding. It seems to me that this suffering servant according to the Dead Sea Scrolls community, will not only be a Messiah, he will also be God. <laughs> Again, this, this fits the bill when it comes to Jesus of Nazareth even more. So uh, Peter Flint, uh, William Brownlee, they, they did so much research on the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it really does shed light on the fact that the suffering servant is not, is not uh, the Israelites as a people. It's an actual Israelite, an actual person, Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Messiah, and he is also God. So this is amazing. This is absolutely amazing. And I want to thank uh, Father Joe for sending me uh, that little article about the Dead Sea Scrolls and how they relate once again to Jesus. Really, the best way that they can help us is to show us what people were thinking, what they were expecting the Messiah to do and to be when Jesus appeared on the scene. If you've got a question for me on the Faith Explained mailbag, you can send it to me. The address is faith, that's through email, faith, F-A-I-T-H, at relevantradio.com. And you can also find me on the X app at 
Kale Clark, C-A-L-E Clark with an E. I'll see you later today on the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio at 5 p.m. Central and 23 and a half hours from now, 1230 Central tomorrow on The Faith Explained. Check the podcast anytime on our app. Share it with a friend. God bless you. Peace.